John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 215.1C1413, certificate number 5725. Chinook jargon. You're a Northwesterner and you, uh, born and bred. Yeah, you, uh, you're familiar with the fact that, like a lot of regions in the United States, we have. Uh, a, a lot of Native American place names here. Yes, maybe more so than other places, or maybe they just stick out to me because of their they're fun to say. Yeah, in New England, there are a lot of places that are uh, named for, uh, you know, the sort of original Native American names. And those are fun to say, too. They are. Connecticut, yeah. Narragansett. <laughs> right. Uh, and I think that's probably true in the Southwest. I mean, all across the United States, really. One of the one of the things we did as we pushed the inhabitants off the land is we kept their names for places. Why are their names so much more fun to say than ours? Yeah, it's got to be a form of of uh, a kind of Arcadian, uh, like original original European belief that the United States was a a place where man could. Uh, uh, humans were already living a kind of blissful, naive uh, state of sort of uh, oneness with nature. But also gave things a lot of fun names with like a lot fun of hard names. CHs and comedy Ks. Actual, the actual people kind of made it difficult to maintain this Arcadian vision, so they kept the names. Right, we got uh, we got rid of the people, the but kept all the funny comedy Ks. But in the Northwest, I think probably it was um, like the, the native populations here were the last to be contacted by Europeans. They were smart. They were <laughs> they were as far away as they could get, and lived side by side. Uh, with European settlers for a lot longer, I think. Probably because the Europeans were sparser here for longer. Right. right? And there was, there was, um, I think there was a longer period where there was a kind of communal living arrangement. Um, maybe not longer in time because of course, New England Europeans lived side by side with, uh, with, you know, the indigenous population for two centuries, right? Before they, um, before finally there were just too many Europeans. Yeah, in small numbers, Europeans add a lot to a to a peninsula or a party. Sure. But you get too many of them. Iron cooking pots and whatnot. It's great. But 
You're, but you're saying out here it was it lasted later, right? It lasted later, right? It lasted into even uh, into living memory before the the um, you know the inevitable sort of uh, reservation culture and the gradual sort of erasing of tribes' identities and so forth. I mean, that happened here in the 20th century or was was ongoing in the 20th century. Have you noticed I think what I think is kind of a Seattle trend lately of organizations making sure that uh, somewhere uh, related to their events or posted on their space is a disclaimer to the effect that uh, we recognize that this is this was tribal land? No. Well, I haven't seen that. Yeah, they uh, before movies at the Seattle Film Festival. There's a title card that now says, "And we recognize that you know, along with all their other you know organizational stuff, and we recognize this is tribal land of the original peoples of the blah blah blah." And it, that, that our movie theater is built upon. Yeah, it seems very specific to this movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> what did they find out? No, I think it's just kind of a general disclaimer, and it, it kind of feels like lip service. You know, yeah, well, we're not sure. actually going to do anything, but just so you know. This was not always like white people territory. Right. That's kind of the problem with that sort of film festival uh, pandering. But it's, it's awareness, and it costs them nothing. But but in the Northwest, in particular, there are uh, there are a lot of instances where tribes were um, the tribes were just sort of. I mean, the tre- treaty tribes, tribes that had treaties with the U.S. government, were just kind of erased, um, and their land was never actually apportioned to them and without the land the tribe wasn't able to assert itself i mean there are all these kind of uh clauses within the the uh, the treaty relationships that the government has with various tribes and if you can't maintain that your tribe occupied your treaty land consistently then you can't demonstrate that you exist so these treaties were full of loopholes and there were oh, agencies that can, were like can you oh, believe it <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys didn't read the riparian clause three. You no longer get any salmon. And we've seen in recent years the restoration of uh, of regional, you know, tribes regional to the Puget Sound um, as they, you know, as the as the remaining members of the tribe are finally able to convincingly assert their existence, and then they they end up being sort of. Granted, new land, especially now that the organizational benefit of the doubt would, you know, probably trends in their direction for the first time in five hundred years. Right. When well, in the, the past, any kind of government uh, inspector or judge would be looking for a way to to take the land away. I think you know it's the it's the film festivals that really start the process. <laughs> I don't want to use the word hero lightly, John, but <laughs> but in the Northwest, you know, there were um, there was a great proliferation of tribes and. Oh, you kind of think of if it, without um, without much familiarity with the region, you might think of it as a kind of monolithic culture. But in fact, there were it wasn't just that there there were different dialects of a of a shared language. There were whole language groups uh, that were remarkably different from one another, in, just in a pretty confined region of the Pacific Coast, from Northern California to the Alaska Panhandle. And if you're not BC. if you're not from here, you probably don't think of those as iconic Native American tribes in the way you would, you know, the big southwestern tribes like Hopi or Navajo, or you know, the ones that got exposure via westerns and reservations, right? Or the or, Iroquois, or, or exactly, or the original Iroquois League tribes. Not not great name recognition, probably as you say, because they were kind of erased pretty subtly and quickly as the region got populated. But also the 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 um, the geography here, the the just the 
the kind of Northwest environment really suited itself to tribes having um, both very constrained territories in the sense that they were, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Cascade Mountains, although the distance from one side to the other is actually not that great, they were enough of an impermeable barrier or, or slightly impermeable that tribes on either side could be, uh, could share very little culturally. But also it was because there was a lot of water here and a lot of yeah, it's abundant sea, right? seafaring. Uh, there was a lot of cross-pollination at the same time. And so although the language groups tended to be very different and culturally the, the, the tribes of the region had a, had um, a tremendous diversity of culture. They also met one another in trade. And you're talking about before any trade with pre-contact with Europeans. Hmm. And so, although it's disputed whether or not um, Chinook jargon was a a pre-contact existing trade Creole or, or pigeon language, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that um, that there was a somewhat of a kind of pidgin trade language that allowed all the the tribes of the region to kind of encounter one another and have some uh, some language in common. And you just said, after reminding me to say Chinook, you said Chinook just there, right? And it is. It, uh, the accepted pronunciation now is Chinook with a hard ch. Because that's maybe more authentic to the original language and pronunciation. But of course, as we were raised here in the Northwest, we were raised to pronounce it Chinook. Well, there's so many things named after it, most of, many of which have kind of crossed into the natural national culture. It's a, what, it's a wind, but it's also a salmon and a helicopter? Is that right? <laughs> is First it, a, it was a helicopter and then it was a it's hovercraft. A, it's a helicopter driven by a salmon? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all the yeah. I think all these things people tend to say Chinook, but Chinook is a little more is the woke way to say it. I think Chinook is how we're going to describe the tribe mm-hmm. and the language, okay. and Chinook has become, in a way, kind of a uh, a loan word of of Chinook jargon. Um, Chinook jargon was uh, was a language that that evolved in the sort of contact era um the the chinook tribes are the ones that are or i'm I'm sorry the what we think of as lower chinook tribe was located right at the mouth of the columbia river on the washington side sort of across from astoria um in what is now washington so they were probably among the first contacted like the first white people in the region to spend much time there would have been Lewis and Clark winding up around there. Right? Lewis and Clark were there, but even uh, even an earlier Spanish explorer mm-hmm. encountered them. Um, the Russians met them. Like the Chinook were a uh, were absolutely like one of the first um, points of contact, and they legendarily had an extremely different difficult language um, with with uh, with like several verb tenses that that. Uh, we don't use. That's exciting because past, present, future would seem like it would cover it, but it seems like they've discovered some new temporal uh, possibilities. They had they had six different tenses, verb tenses. They had um, uh, tenses for the mythic past. Oh, nice! 
a different tense for the remote past, a tense for the recent past, a tense for the immediate past, (laughs) and then present and future tenses. You know, if you've ever learned even another European language, you know, the tenses don't map neatly onto English. Right. Uh, And it's funny how quick it becomes second. I speak Spanish and there's, you know, there's two kinds of past tenses. One for something you just did for a short period of time in the past and one for something you did over a longer period of time in the past. More or less the English equivalent between I worked and I was working. And it's funny just how quick it becomes second nature. Uh, you know, there's nothing magical about our English tenses. You know, like a, a Chinook speaker could have, you know, it, it would be immediately clear in the middle of the sentence what's mythic past and what's distant past. Right. And they wouldn't even have to think about it, but it would lend an interesting flavor to the sentence. Remote past, recent past, and immediate past. Uh, I mean, you can identify those in your mind, right? It's clear. But uh, but to have the ability within a, within your language to express that would be, I mean, it would make you so articulate about things that happened in the past. Yeah, would, there'd be nuances of meaning in a sentence if you changed it from remote to mythic or, right. or you know, and... Uh, and and I, you could make jokes within this or, you know, or, or illusions. They would have to have some kind of agreed upon idea of where the boundaries are. Uh-huh. Like what what year, you know, you know, they wouldn't have numbered years the same way we do, but they would have had to have some some sense, some consensus of... You know, when Chief Whatever was still alive, is that remote past or is that... Right, right. Mythic past, sure. Yeah. Well, and you would... Uh, thinking of our language now and the way we the way we are communicating with each other, what, what matters to us on the internet, it's surprising that we haven't developed a... We haven't developed tenses for like mythic future, remote future, recent future, because we do think in these terms uh, as much as we think in, in terms of past tenses now. And certainly if time travel ever became possible. Right. I mean, well, the futurelings are like, we have 74 different verb tenses. It must be a nightmare. Well, but time is a flat circle. Things, so things that have happened uh, subjectively to you, but not yet objectively in chronological time versus the other way around. It's tough. I mean, we, we it happens to us all the time making the show. That's right. (laughs) Even in our intros and outros, we don't know exactly what tends to use. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes we do have social media. Sometimes we did have social media. We don't know what's going on. It's the mythic past. But so Chinook itself was very, uh, was a difficult language to learn. And there, uh, there's some suggestion from the writings of, uh, you know, of those early contact writers that, um, that the feeling within the, the, uh, indigenous tribes of the region were that the Chinook were Chinook. I'm sorry that the Chinook were kind of a haughty people and they didn't share all the ins and outs of their language. Uh, they They kind of, they're so great. Yeah. They kind of gave you a little bit of a, of a shorthand of Chinook that they felt like was good enough for you. That's a cultural stereotype that we still see today. I know uh, it's an impression a lot of people have of Japan, for example, very difficult language, multiple alphabets to learn, and not a culture that really cares to teach you Japanese. Right. Like, like they like that their signs aren't super bilingual. Like, that's a feature to them. Like, we've got a nice, complicated language, and we're going to take advantage of that. As you can imagine, the the initial European settlers, um, and and in the Northwest in particular, were less bent on conquest than they were on trade. Uh, they wanted as many beaver pelts as they could manage to extract from the region. And, um, and the thing about beaver pelts is 
What is the thing about beaver pelts? Well, it's it's a very labor-intensive crop to harvest. You don't just go out and uh, grab beavers by the tail. You have to spend some time collecting beavers. Beavers are not— Beaver foreplay. Beavers are not super dumb. Uh, you have to, I, you I have mean, to trick not, the beaver. Yeah, they're not as smart as like a owl, maybe. I'm not sure. Does the owl have a graduation cap on? Maybe a bee. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a beaver dam? Otters seem smart. Do you think beavers are dumber than otters? I, my experience of interacting with beavers and otters is that I think otters are smarter than beavers, but it's because otters are cuter than beavers. You think a beaver's cute because you see it on a coin or on a flag and you think, oh, the beaver. Buck teeth. Buck teeth are cute on a human. But when you look at a beaver up close, those terrible yellow teeth with their rodentian faces, you're like, yeah. And otters play. Otters And are we very associate playful. leisure with intelligence. It's very fun. <laughs> but so the, the, you know, the initial Europeans to the region were interested in, in, um, working with the native population to try and incentivize them to to uh to hunt on their behalf uh or to trap rather but also i mean it was a it was a, a like any early contact um culture it it very quickly mixed and there were a lot of french sort of voyageurs uh here there was the hudson bay company everybody wants pelts there were, uh, I mean, as you say, Lewis and Clark, a lot of people arriving in the region. There were Russians. There were uh, the Spanish initially. And so very quickly, a kind of lexicon started to develop. And some of it, um, it and it was rooted around the Chinook because they, as you, as you said, kind of held a pole position um, over the Columbia River, which was the main thoroughfare. Right. But another con- uh, like early population uh, contacted by uh, or encountered by Captain Cook and a lot of the original visitors to Puget Sound, European visitors, were the Nootka up of, uh, on Vancouver Island. The Nootka. The Nootka were, um, were f- sort of famously uh, like a First Nation encounter that was, uh, that was written about pretty extensively. There was a... Because it went badly? Or? Because it went badly. There mm. was, uh, the, the Nootka actually raided a European ship and captured um, some sailors and held them as slaves and held them for over a year. That's a fun little turnaround on the usual little story bit of, a, little of, bit of, of a st- enslaving whoever the natives are. Like, this is Dog Bites Man. Well, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of. Sorry, Man Bites Dog, I said it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> It's like dog bites man. That famous story we've never heard. But you know, like uh, uh, it was not on unco- slavery was a was a component of pre-contact um, uh, native populations here right. in the Northwest, as I think it was all across the Americas. But uh, but these sailors were captured and then eventually won their freedom, and then wrote a book. Uh, one of, one of them famously wrote a book about his time with the Nootka. Uh, kind of, and it was an early glimpse, an inside glimpse of like what the what the actual culture was. Um, I think how glamorous that would have seemed at the time, you know, this brave young man fighting his way to freedom somehow in the rugged Northwest with his his brutal slave owning oppressors, and and really a, a, a somewhat of a unique experience in that most of the time those contact narratives are written 
between populations that are trying to interact with one another, either on their best behavior or at war or in some kind of trade relationship. Not generally do you hear about it from the perspective of someone who is like an indentured servant, but also a Westerner and so able to, I mean, you get, you get a real insider view if you're, if you're the one that's I cleaning out it. the outhouses. Yeah, I want to read it. It's a, it's actually a great book. Uh, um, but so some of those Nootka words were, were um, uh, made an impression, were kind of gathered, I guess, into small, slim volumes of native trade words that were passed around among the initial white explorers because this is, this, these are valuable commodities, right? A, a list of 25 words that you can speak intelligibly to people you meet when you come into a waterway and some canoes are paddled out it's to you. It's a life and death resource. Right. Uh, and so then, and, and with a new influx of people coming all the time, that's, that's really valuable. And so there were like quite a few little dictionaries uh, that, that each new, um, each new European contact produced another little series of, you know, nouns and verbs that would help you navigate you know, whatever that encounter was going to be. That's funny. You know, you're going to have to have some kind of knife. You're going to have to have a thing full of oil. You're going to have to have a a dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that on your, on your utility belt. But very difficult because from the standpoint of someone in a ship who's sailing from, uh, from the Columbia river to Vancouver Island, that's a journey that may take weeks, but in the process of, of transiting all that ground, you're going to pass through four or five different language groups. And so your Nootka words yeah. aren't going to serve have, you very people well. People have spoken the wrong language all the time because it's like, hey, look, more Indians. Say that Indian word. You know, that's not how it works. But you would, I think, uh, I think what they discovered was that there was already a, you know, a previous um, nascent lingua franca in the form of this, um, this pre-existing pigeon. kind of pigeon that was being used already by by the tribes, and the Nootka were familiar with Chinook words, and the sh- and when uh, when European sailors arrived in Chinook territory and tried to use their Nootka words, they were not completely unintelligible. Hmm. And over the course of these early, you know, this this sort of late eighteenth century period of exploration up through. Um, Lewis and Clark, every one of these encounters produced a little bit of this cross-pollination so that by the time Lewis and Clark arrived on the West Coast in 1803, they were already able to um, sort of identify a, a Chinook jargon as being a distinct thing from um, from the Chinook language. So they understood, hey, the tribes speak this way, but like here's a here's a small here's a more limited set of words that everybody around here speaks that we can get away with. Right. Um and there's there's some suggestion that the that the that the idea of a of a jargon which now is in incorporating uh native words from a few different languages, but also English words, because of course in every one of these encounters, when someone says you know, uh, you know when a when a native person says "skookum chuck," the English person is going to respond with whatever 
their interpretation of, of that word is, and that is then going to be right. They're going to trade that. What is Skookum Chuck's the name of a river? Uh, does Sco- it does it mean something in in Chinook jargon? And I assume it's called a jargon because it's it's vocabulary for a specific activity. It's it's for trading, and that makes it jargon. It's it's the jargon of a particular sector of life or profession. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. So Skookum is one of the major. Uh, Chinook jargon words. And skookum is a word that I grew up with. Really? Um, yeah. Like you heard people would say this or you, you knew it, you knew of it as a native word. People would say it. So, so my, uh, you know, my earliest um, relatives to arrive in the Northwest got here in the early 1880s uh, uh, during a period where um, Chinook language was widely spoken and widely spoken among like among white folks too. Among white folks in Seattle, as a as not as both a trade language and also as a kind of affected language of class and culture. See, I mean, Seattle was actually a city, so it was kind of their urban slang. It was, and it was. It, it would w- be the equivalent of Italian words in a certain part of Queens or whatever. It was a point of pride that you could speak it huh. uh, because it meant you were well traveled, and um, and at the time, I mean, there were. There were never really, aside aside from like a very early battle here between uh, between the original sort of residents of Seattle and those the early settlers, like the the, the first battle of Seattle mm-hmm. uh, pre WTO. Other than that, most of the most of the contact here was, I guess you would describe as peaceful, although it was. You know, it was uh, over the long term. It was overwhelming, right? Yeah. The, the European settlers just gradually overwhelmed and pushed the population out, uh, rather than being winning big, a battle and, right. and fencing them in. Yeah. Um, and so, in Seattle in the 1880s, there were uh, Native Americans sprinkled throughout the city, and it, you didn't have to go far afield before you were in Indian country. Uh, so Chinook jargon was was a valuable language to know. And in particular in British Columbia, uh, the sense was that Chinook jargon, well into the 20th century in mining camps and logging communities and the further afield you went, it was still a, a first language for people. So really, so jargon is in some ways a misnomer. There are a lot of different Creoles in um, around the world in places where European languages uh, collided with um, with indigenous languages, and it, it, most famously, the, the the Creoles that have the largest number of native speakers. The largest one is Haitian Creole, mm-hmm. which is actually a, a a lot of languages all crushed together, kind of like Chinook jargon. Uh, Haitian Creole is some African languages, French, um, some Caribbean languages. English, Carib languages. And uh, the difference is that the the linguistic difference is that a pidgin is nobody's native language. It's just kind of an agreed upon melange. Whereas a Creole becomes fixed enough in the culture that people start speaking it as a full fledged language. So what you get with pidgin is that you have a you have a a series of words that allow you to communicate with one another, but you haven't really settled on much of a grammar. Mm. Um, you just have words that are mutually intelligible. And as that evolves into a Creole, what you're taking then is 
different aspects of different languages, the grammar of one and the nouns of another, or the, you know, the, um, it's the, still a mix. It's a mix. But you but get an actual language out of it. You start to get a language and you can have a Creole as a, as a first language. And mm-hmm. there are plenty of examples of that. You know, they're like talk pissing in, um, in Papua New Guinea is the primary language of, uh, of a million people, but also the second language of 5 million people. It's, it's the, the lingua franca that, that you assume everyone in New Guinea speaks. Yeah. And so it's you, a mix of European stuff or is it just all the local tribal languages? So if you, if you read it phonetically, if you look at it, um, and try to imagine it as a, as a language, you, you wouldn't find it intelligible, but if you speak it phonetically, that if you speak the written language phonetically, it's, uh, it's based in English. Oh, it's like those Tintin languages where the tribe says things like, Hey, you leave me alone or whatever. And it's spelled funny, but it really is that that's funny. Uh, like, you know, you can, you can, uh, it sounds like someone who doesn't speak English very well. Awa to goose. I am right. But, um, but in fact, it's a, it is its own language and it, and it borrows from, um, from a whole handful of languages. And it's called talk pissin. Talk pissin. I don't like talk pissin. Like keep, keep your lips zipped at the urinal is my motto. <laughs> this entry in the omnibus is brought to you by Mac Weldon. You, you wear Mac Weldon's fine array of, of men's apparel, John. I do. I think that they, um, make good underwear and I wear them. I'm wearing them now. It's got the silver thread. Some of them. Some of their underwear is woven with a magical silver thread that uh, reduces um, bio uh, eames. Bio eames. It's like anti-microbial uh, or it whatever. Is. It's it's hygienic to have silver in your underwear. It it is. It makes uh, it makes uh, bio elements uncomfortable. Um, it, it works the, it, similarly to the way silver works against vampires. Uh, it's just a, so if the microbes are little tiny werewolves, that's right. Then they can't get well, in. which they are. <laughs> which, as we know, <laughs> all microbes are also werewolves. That's why when it's a full moon, mm-hmm. like uh, regular little happy microbes in your saliva turn into um, you know Ebola. I don't know if this is true of you. Do you have special underwear that you wear when it's a special day? No, really. I'm, so I'm married. I don't need. <laughs> I don't need fancy Friday night underwear. No, but I mean, like, if it's if it's like, oh, today I'm going on. Let's say, for instance, the greatest of all time Jeopardy championship. Do you put on oh. a a set of ceremonial underwear? Game do, show underwear. Do you have a pair in the in the um in your underwear drawer when you open it and you look in? You're like. Oh, not those. It's all like, interchangeable. I save those. No, it's all interchangeable. But I can tell you do they're by, just by t- your line of questioning. <laughs> they're just tidy whities All of yours are just like normal, like Hanes tidy whities I, uh, I was, when I went to the Mac Weldon site, I expected to be underwear shopping, mm. but uh, that's not the entirety of their brand. No, no, they have like, shirts. The first thing I sweats. saw was some like really nice, ra- like rain shield jacket. Mm-hmm. They had Henleys and cardigans. I bought a cardigan. They've expanded a lot. And it's really nice, like premium stuff. I mean, it's built to last. It's nicer than nice. I really, I dig it. You know, I like, I, I underwear matters, Ken. And, uh, Hashtag underwear matters. And, uh, and having good underwear is, uh, is an important component in like getting out of the house with confidence. They have this loyalty program where if you just sign up for on their website for free, you get free shipping forever. 
And then once you've bought a certain amount of product, like you get 20% off for the rest of the year. I'm well aware of this. It's, this is like frequent flyer for underwear. <laughs> One of the great what's things. Your, what's your, <laughs> I have silver, silver thread medallion status on Mac Weldon. One of the great things about that discount is that the more that you buy, the more the discount discounts your ultimate charge. So you get right up to an amount where it's like, I'm going to spend $200 or whatever on underwear. But each additional pair of underwear you add, the discount then will put you back under $200. I've spent hours in there. Trying like, to calibrate the... Just put one more pair of socks in there. Oh, also, they have great socks. Like yes. I, I really like their socks. I bought these pink and gray striped socks that I uh, am delighted about. Uh, it was super easy to use. Like, I had my order done in minutes. Yeah. I'm a big fan. And... Uh, it's super cool. Is there any kind of special offer we can we can we can try to tempt any listeners oh we're with. doing a mac weldon ad oh i thought we were just talking about how great mac weldon stuff is yeah i was secretly recording us as, as i <laughs> as i tricked you into talking about how amazing mac weldon is yeah mac weldon actually is offering uh listeners to the omnibus program uh, a special discount it's 20 percent off their first order at MacWeldon.com. If they enter the promo code Omnibus. I'm going to assume you can spell the name of our show, but here's how you spell Mac Weldon. M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. That's like Mac, like Daddy Mac. Yes. But don't put Daddy in It's not like there. Mac, like Big Mac. It's got the K. No, it does have the K. Like Mac Trucks. Yes. Or, Mac Weldon. Or like uh, Mac the Knife. And Weldon is W-E-L-D-O-N, not like Wielden. There's not two L's. Right. It's There's, just... MacWeldon.com. It's, it's not one of your silent L's like in Soviet. Om, omnibus does not have two M's or two B's. A-O-M-N-I-B-U-S is the promo code. And these can be your special underwear. They can be your special socks as they are mine. 20% off. Keep off the werewolves. There are other languages that extend all the way to... So what, what you get with a Creole is uh, it's an encounter language. People that are fluent in one, meet people who are fluent in another, and they build a language out of their, the component parts. They, they pick and choose between the, the two languages and, and make a mutually intelligible language. A mixed language is one where um, what you have is people that spoke both languages fluently, and in the course of just their oh, interactions, in their heads, they just started saying this word in French and that word in Cree. So there's a language uh, called uh, Meti, which is, or I'm sorry, the language is called Michif, uh, which is the language of the Meti people. And it's really a like a a, a, a true mix of French and Cree. Um, and was where are the where is the Cree tribe? This is in the, the, like the central Canada, the plains yeah, yeah, states yeah, yeah. of Canada okay. and in the United States, uh, Great Lakes region, kind of a thing, right? Um, and there were, I think, there even are still a handful of native speakers or or uh, who learned it, who learned the language natively, which is to say, as children in in not as a not as a program, like people that speak Welsh now learned it because of, you know, it's some nationalist project, right? To teach it in schools, but they learned it at home. There was a language that was a, a combination of Russian and Aleut um, that existed kind of out in the, uh, in the Aleutian Islands that was, again, sort of a mixed language. Now, now Chinook jargon never was um, 
it was based largely on a simplified version of Chinook, but it took, it borrowed English words. It borrowed, um, it borrowed Nootka words. It borrowed French words. I mean, in some cases, the you know the white settlers are probably introducing concepts that they don't have a word for. Right. You know, it's the same reason why, you know, a lot of languages say "el internet" because you know the the, the first right. time you know it, it it was already invented somewhere and they had a word for it. The French tried to say "embourgeois" or whatever from a bourgeois. But it didn't really... Everybody else says hamburger. Right. And the Academy Francaise is trying to get people to say chop meat on bun or whatever, but it's 17 syllables, so... Well, and there are so many words like that in the world. Taxi, exit, stop, um, uh, I mean, uh, goulash. You, you can, you can as, you, as you traverse the world, you realize, like, everyone says taxi, everyone says hotel. And um, you just spell it in... Indifferent. The fact that they're, they are often travel-related means either that's where you and I are encountering them, or there is something about the experience of travel that tends to make people think, oh, we, this should be a universally intelligible Well, word. in general, if you are running a hotel, you're... It helps. If, <laughs> you want the people to see the sign. You know, you don't care if the locals know what Unless it says. Unless you're Basil Fawlty, <laughs> you want people in your hotel. Uh, by the 1870s, it was estimated that there were 100,000 native speakers of Chinook jargon in the Northwest. You never got back to my question. What does skookum chuck mean? Oh, so skookum is this uh, this incredible word that means like strong, big, good. So it's it, it can it, can it just be used to intensify things? You drop in a skookum? And- Absolutely. So the way I learned it was, uh, you know, my dad, whose grandfather absolutely spoke Chinook jargon as a component of doing business in Seattle. Um, My dad would say like, ah, that, you know, that's pretty skookum. (laughs) Like, or like, he's a pretty skookum guy. Uh, As a, just a, as just a descriptor of things that were cool. Like, or, or, or even the, the, uh, even more commonly, someone would say, one of his old cronies would be like, is that skookum? And dad would say, like, that's good. It means okay. Yeah, like, that's good, or uh, that's cool, or that's that's uh, that's solid. I, so I never, is, is the last generation that would have done that now gone? Yeah. There's nobody in Seattle is. Famously, the real estate agent Henry Broderick, who was sort of one of the famous original sort of founding members of Seattle, was, when he died, his obituary said that he was the last guy the last guy who was fluent in Skookum, the last white guy in Seattle that was fluent in Skookum. And that was a while back. In, uh, and uh, yeah, this is mid 20th century at some time or late 20th century. Henry or? Broderick and my great aunt had a sort of famous romance. Is it because their names rhymed? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, he, her, he only wanted to date people whose names <laughs> rhymed with Broderick. Her, her last name was Rochester. So oh, I see. It doesn't really. Broderick and Roderick. But you know, the, Henry Broderick played, a, played an outside Wait, role. is that where you family. got your name? Henry Broderick and uh, Elaine Rochester had sex and the Rodericks were born? No. Oh. Well. But some other words that you might know are potlatch. Oh, I mean, that one, that one still gets taught in S- Seattle area schools and I'm sure anybody taking anthropology. And it's, now, it's some kind of a gift trading scenario, right? Yeah, that's a, a jargon word for a for a dinner where everybody brings something, right? Um, and uh, and the, the wait, so our word does our word our more uh, traditionally American word potluck potluck is derived from potlatch a potlatch. Yeah, so uh, so a potluck dinner is is an extension of Chinook, 
potlatch, it, is potlatch culture the thing where everybody brings a bigger and bigger gift and eventually yeah, and you, you, the, the sign of your wealth is that you give your wealth away we don't have that in Seattle. We have the opposite of that. We <laughs> we know we know have the word Bezos, which is the opposite of that. Uh, let's see. Are you familiar with the word Chichaco? Chichaco, yeah, largest city in Illinois. No. What is Chichaco? So Chichaco is a word that's uh, that has been really adopted by Alaskans as a word to describe a newcomer or like a. Uh, it's like somebody, how, It's like Howley? Yeah, somebody from outside is a Chichaco. And in fact, Hawaiian ended up, a lot of Hawaiian words got introduced into Chinook jargon. Oh, weird. Um, just Pacific sailors? Just, and- yeah, Pacific Northwestern uh, or people coming from, from Hawaii, bringing Hawaiian words with them. We say the Pacific Rim like it's a region, but the Pacific Ocean is half of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's just a very narrow <laughs> ring, but it goes all the way around the globe. Yeah, but it really, it is just the coastal communities that, uh, that only go like 20 miles in. I still feel, if I'm in, it doesn't matter whether I'm in Phuket or Ketchikan, I just feel like I'm right at home. <laughs> there are, there is a, a Pacific Islander community now that is kind of asserting its um, identity across great distances so that Tongans and New Zealanders are making common cause with Aleuts um, and really? the tribes of the Northwest and sort of, I think, Trying to create an idea that it's a co- that it's a common identity, a, co- a common lineage. Yeah. You know, that would, you know, if you're really going all the way from Samoa up to the Aleutians, that's, I mean, that's bigger than any nation on Earth. Right. It's just most of it has population zero. Use your Aleutian. Oof. Volume one. Boo. That, that's going to be my uh, my dictionary that I make <laughs> for this, and for, to be followed by Use Your Aleutian Volume Two. <laughs> uh, there was uh, there was a word that was. Uh, I think more common when I was a kid, which was Siwash, which was a sort of a word that was meant or that described a native man. Um, A a Siwash is a, it's an indigenous person. An an, an Indian man in particular, but, um, but that has become a slur. So it's not, even when I was a kid, it was, I mean, but you know, when I was a kid, there was a lot of, uh, you could say anti, slurs when you were kids. Yeah, there was a lot of in, anti-Indian racism that passed uh, by, like uncommented upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but now it's that's that word is commonly sort of regarded as a slur. There, the word for an Indian woman was klooch. Uh, is, is that also? I mean, a lot of those gendered words have become passe, just for the reason that you know you don't generally humans do not have gendered words like that that are specific to a race you, we do that with animals right and so it's a little bit insulting to say we have an, you, we have the equivalent of stag and doe but just for indians right you know? well, and, and but i think they were jargon words for man and woman right. that ended up being yeah. jargon words for indian man and indian woman yeah or a, it was klooch or kluchman uh which would have been the even more jargony word which i think was is regarded as a slur in alaska and i'm not sure whether that ever took on the quality of a slur in the in Washington and Oregon and BC. Well, I hope they bleep what you just said. If if it's a terrible, uh, so, I mean, you word know, word in the future, like like slur, just in, in not in the, the sense of it being, um, it's not conveying anything unique 
There's no right. It doesn't mean like drunk or anything. Right. It just is a. It's a word that we're not. But using I mean, that, that's true of a lot of our racist words that you know they. Right. It, you know, it was enlightened people would say Negro, and once enough unenlightened people start saying Negro, you start to not like the shade of meaning, and you think that word's done. We need a new word, and then only the racists are left saying Negro. And in this case, I think that these words are just done. No one, no one says, no one uses these words anymore unless they are, I guess, are either in a BC mining camp or. In this case, uh, in Oregon and uh, and some other regional places, there's now a movement to rediscover Chinook jargon and teach it to kids as a as a first language. Oh, interesting! Why wouldn't you teach just the uh, the actual first language of the geographically appropriate tribe? Well, interesting that you would ask. So, in Oregon, during the period when tribes were beginning to be um, displaced and put together on reservations, if you can imagine that the, re- that, the, um, that the culture that would put different tribes together in, uh, in reservations did not make a tremendous distinction between different tribes. Two kinds of people, us and not us. <laughs> and so in Oregon, there is a, uh, there is a, uh, a tribal community called the Grand Ronde, which is it's a in the it's on sort of northern coastal Oregon. Mm-hmm. There's a big reservation that ended up being the home to a pretty wide variety of tribes that did not share a culture really with one another or a language, and they were all kind of put together on this reservation. And Chinook jargon was sort of what they had uh, as a common tongue, and now as the tribe and then. Chinook jargon went away in the course of the 20th century. The number of people that were born speaking it, raised speaking it as a first language, gradually died out, and it, and it wasn't. It didn't continue to be taught. Is it pretty much zero now? Uh, there's some speculation. I mean, not only Chinook jargon is gone, but Chinook yeah. is gone. Um, a lot of the the regional languages are just there's no one speaks them anymore. But there's now an attempt being made um, to rediscover the language. And because the residents of Grand Ronde and all, uh, represent all these different tribes, all of whom have lost their language, really Chinook jargon is the only language they had in common. And they're, they're, uh, they're making a, a strong push to relearn it and to teach it to their kids. So if you're on tribal land in the Pacific Northwest, or even in some place where a government agency is uh, trying to look inclusive, signs will be bilingual, yeah. and the English signage will be followed by uh, something that uses uh, Roman orthography, our alphabet, but it's clearly a native language, and there's like... Tons a, of accents. And there's question marks yeah. in it. So would that be... I mean, is that the, the spelling you would use for any of these native languages, or am I seeing Chinook jargon if I see like a word with one of those question marks in it under the under the no parking sign or under the seven rivers casino sign or or whatever it is well so chinook clearly didn't have an alphabet because it was this it was a you know a language that was um well even chinook wasn't written there's no writing in that culture uh but in the mid 1880s a man by the name of uh per lejeune in bc he's a priest i guess Yep. Or he's a pear, a, a uh, delicious a, pear. Right, he's a delicious pear. Uh, he began um, publishing a newspaper in Chinook 
it was a popular enough language. And and uh, Chinook jargon in Chinook jargon is actually called Chinook Wawa. Uh, Wawa is their word for talk or Wawa something? Wawa is the word for talk. And so he began publishing a newspaper called the Kamloops Wawa. And all reports indicate that in the 1880s uh, and 1890s, Chinook jargon, like passages in Chinook jargon would be published in the Seattle Times without translation. Oh. You'd be reading an article and they would quote a Chinook source and it would be in Chinook. And, and it just switched to that alphabet. And people understood understood it, could read it. I just looked it up. That kind of bat, weird backwards seven thing or question mark thing is a glottal stop. A glottal stop. And so there, it's like the Hawaii thing, right? Right. And there are a lot of T's and Q's and X's and yes. and uh T-S. Q's without U's. Um, and all of these are just trying to trying to approximate how you would pronounce languages that have a lot of glottal stops and not a ton of vowels. So you could write Chinook Wawa in that language, in that uh, orthography. You could. Oh. You could. It was, it's, I guess, a, um, it's, it, you know, it's a, whatever, an, an attempt. Um, I think it's called, what is it? Is it? No. There, there, are, there are quite a few languages that have been, you know, that have been given alphabets. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess it's the Chinook Pipa hmm. is the script. Um, and actually, it was a, it began as a kind of short, a stenographer's shorthand that then was kind of, um, then it was adopted by uh, by Father Lejeune, who began sort of publishing Kamloops Wawa in that. It, would, it was a French stenographer's shorthand um, that then he sort of added all these different, like, uh, different sort of uh, uh, pronunciation hints and clues. And we see it uh, written in, in Seattle on various, you know, at... Chief Self's plinth and down in Pioneer Square. Yeah, if you just go to some place that has a list of signs about the life cycle of the salmon, you know, some culturally sensitive city planner might put a, a Chinook translation below the signs. Right. And th- this this desire to reestablish it, um, actually the Lane Community College in Eugene, Oregon, has started teaching a three-semester uh, like unit on Chinook Wawa. I wonder who's taking it. Like cu- I, curious, socially aware white kids or probably a mix of, of that and residents of Grand Ronde and people yeah. that are trying to reestablish a more, uh, concrete native identity within the, within the communities here that are all kind of each one trying to like, remember its past that was pretty systematically erased and reestablish some kind of, of like shared experience. Um, a woman by the name of Sequoia Edwards wrote a book in Esperanto, uh, like translating Esperanto into Chinook, which seems like a real sort of tilting at windmills project. Is it like a dictionary or is it? it, I I think maybe a guide. It's an Esperanto speaker's guide to Chinook. I see. It's how to learn Chinook, but the the text is all in 
Esperanto. Right. Yeah, there's got to be a huge audience for a book like that. (laughs) I mean, the question is like, you know, where is she going to find a bank that'll cash a check that big once she starts getting her royalties? I think... Uh, my my understanding from my dad and my uh, and the sort of elders in my family was that by the 1930s in the Northwest, it was clear that Chinook was dying out, and there was a lot of sentimentality about it. It was uh, again a kind of um, they they sort of forgot all the the troubles uh, and it, and it, and remembered a more halcyon time when the old timers and the local tribes, you know, got together for potlatches and traded beaver skins and weren't those the days, uh, you know, obviously my dad had never he- really heard Chinook spoken, but uh, enough of his grandfather's uh, generation still sprinkled those words into conversation that it, that it made it all the way down to me. Well, I think that's Skookum. And that concludes Chinook Jargon, entry 215.1C1413, certificate number 5725, in the Omnibus. Now, if anything we've said in any language or orthography today has sparked any interest in you, you can uh, look for ways to communicate that to us uh, in uh, Esperanto or some mix of Esperanto and uh, native Pacific Northwest pidgin. Whatever language you speak, we will make every attempt to understand that, whether we get that on social media, at Ken Jennings or at John Roderick or at Omnibus Project, or on our Facebook or Reddit Futurelings fan groups, or if it's an email we receive at theomnibusproject or gmail at gmail.com or uh, a physical item that you want to send us at uh, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I do want to show you this, John. Hmm. Which we received from a photographer somewhere in the Berkshires who brags that he's our, our 13th Patreon Oh, well done. You know, 13 is my lucky number. I'm glad that they tell people their numbers Mm -hmm. so you can feel like an early adopter, a hipster, a Microsoft stockholder. That's right. You got your little badge. I know my brother still knows to this day what number of Guided by Voices fan he is by virtue of some 100 t-shirt giveaway from way back in the the day. You know, I had an REI number from the early 70s. And in the early 80s, when I went to REI, they couldn't find my number because it was before computers and I'd moved from Washington to Alaska. And so even then, as a young teenager, I was extremely offended that I had to get a new REI number. Do you know how low your number would have been? Well, I mean, pff, not that low, but, but you know, it was from 1977 or something. It was when they switched over the computer from Chinook to Cobalt. <laughs> yeah. And so I have an REI number that now when I go in to REI is regarded as a very low number because I got it in 1981 or something. But, uh, but I'm... And I have, I've asked, I've said, go into your records and find my original number. And nobody, you know, they're like, get out of here, old man. You, you can't file a Freedom of Information Act request with REI. <laughs> uh, anyway, Eric uh, has sent to us, he's a big fan of submarine klaxons, and he has sent us a modern reproduction, an Auga He told me horn. about this. 
He sent me a message. He's saying it might be so loud that you may need to stuff something down the I mean, we have our horn. headphones on. Do you want to give it a honk? Do you want me to honk it? Well, I'm going to have to plug it in, right? I don't know. Does it take a does it take normal power? There's a very long cord. So 110, you can, 111. So you can put the <laughs> whatever it takes. So you can put the horn far away from the button and therefore your ear, I guess. Should we should we try this now? Or I, Should I hook this up and then use it instead of a bell when your puns are especially bad? We sh- yeah, we will definitely scare our your neighbors and possibly our listeners. This I'm is a, an auga horn. It's right? an auga horn. I think that's the technical term. Yeah, but I'm not sure if I know how to set it up. So I'm we gonna, may be. Yeah, let's just work on this another time. I'm I'm gonna put this in my truck. I think. <laughs> That is going to be exciting. <laughs> dive, dive, dive. <laughs> and what did I, I guess I kind of halfway mentioned the Patreon. You can also contribute. You don't have to send John uh, sound effects devices, but if there's any other way you'd like to support that show, we would be grateful for your uh, ongoing support at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Futurelings, uh, from our vantage point in your distant past, where we are speaking whatever version of English it is that we think is the right version, it is actually the definitive version of English, yeah. including Frontier and Soviet. We are the now the protagonists of reality for you. That's right. This is how things are pronounced. My, In fact, the way I pronounce words is how they are canonically pronounced. So the correct way to say Chinook is to alternate Chinook and Chinook. Chinook just and as, Chinook. Just as John did in this show. Depending on whether or not you're talking about the wind the rem- or the language. Or the remote past. Uh, but uh, we hope and pray that our the catastrophe we fear that will maybe wipe this language off the face of the map so that only... A few great, great, great grandchildren in Eugene are trying to resurrect uh, Roderick Jennings' English. We hope that catastrophe never comes. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.